Hello, and welcome back to another edition of the Baseball Talk Radio Show. I'm Gary Mack. And I'm Rich Baxter. And uh, Rich, how the heck are you this crazy week in this baseball world this year? I've been doing better than baseball, I got to say, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have to agree. I think I've been doing better than that, too. And uh, it's just... uh, you know, I don't know what to think uh, about what's going on here at all. It's 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 a crazy year. There's a some teams doing good, but a lot of below 500 teams, uh, um, and a lot of guys. I haven't really looked it up, but from what anecdotally I'm told that uh, a lot of the DHs in the National League are not doing well. I know the Mets. Uh, Anybody, it seems that they put in the D8 slot has a bad game, hasn't been hitting well. So uh, I don't know how it's been in your Phillies, but um, uh, DH in the National League is a problem. And and you know what, Rich, we had a, a situation this week, a Major League Baseball. It was the main thing they wanted to stay away from. We had that brawl between the Oakland A's and the Houston Astros, and, and uh, they did not like the close contact. And it all started when uh, Ramon Laureano, the outfielder for the A's, got hit by, uh, can't remember the guy's name now, uh, Humberto Castellanos of the uh, Houston Astros. He had some choice words for the Houston pitcher and he walked the first base but did not do anything initially and oddly enough it was the coach of the uh, hitting coach Alex Cintron of the Houston Astro that was goading him on from the dugout and Loriano rushed the bench and Cintron and then they all both teams emptied out and they were not practicing social distance and not all were wearing masks so I don't think Dr. Fauci was too happy about that brawl. Uh, but uh, this is what baseball did not want to happen. They've sent out uh, strong penalties. Uh, hitting coach Alex Cintron got 20 games. Loriano got six games. And uh, not what baseball wanted to see in this strange season of COVID-19. Yeah, we've seen uh, a couple brawls um, with the Astros uh, this year so far. We've had benches clearing uh, with the Dodgers, Astros uh, a little bit ago, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've we've had this, you know, maybe it's a mirror of society. Society is very tense right now, it seems like, for, for whatever reason. Um, emotions are running high. Baseball is usually that way, especially if guys get hit, you know. And I guess you you take into effect that, you know, pitchers can not pitch well as well. So it's not always the guy that's aiming for somebody. It's maybe just can't pitch well. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the, the whole Houston, uh, the, the scandal... Um, that plays into it. Teams are mad, though. I don't know why Oakland would be so ticked off about it, but um, 
Uh, unless, well, they did beat him in the playoffs. Maybe that's, I think, one year. So maybe that's got something to do with it. But, uh, yeah, MLB was not happy about it. They really sent down some, you know, 20 games in this short season. As a, yes, it was a coach. Uh, but that's that's a, a lot. That's a third of the season right there, and uh, you know, I it, it's it's crazy. Pitching inside is part of the game. Goading isn't though from the dugout, and uh, they should have just left well enough alone. But you know, as you said, uh, there's a lot of hot tempers out there now, and. Uh, you know, both in society and I guess it just carries over into everything else. Yeah, and we had a little discussion before we started the show. Uh, baseball's changed so much as well. You know, you got the seven-inning games now, sort of like um, softball or college type <laughs> of ball. <laughs> so it's it's a whole different thing that these players are getting used to at the same time. So... You know, and as you said, it's a shortened season. They can't spit. They can't chew seeds and spit them. They can't high five and act, you know, as they did before. So they're under a lot of stress and pressures put onto them by this COVID 19, as well as trying to stay healthy. So, you know, we talked again a little bit before the show about you know, how much can we put credence into this season? Yeah, exactly. It's it's. Uh, I mean, it's going to count for whoever wins. They're going to claim it as a championship, and and I guess they should. I mean, it's an official season, so you can't punish them for that. But I I think uh, you know I think there's going to be a lot of asterisks to this season. For instance, another story that I didn't mention to you before we got started, but it just came to my mind was. Uh, uh, Charlie Blackman is hitting actually at 500. People were talking about he could hit 400 this year. Um, is it the same? It's not the same 400 though. I mean, it, it isn't. It isn't. It. You know, Ted Williams did it in 143 games. I think he played that year. Missed 13 games. And uh, Blackman's going to do it if he does do it in 60. Now, he's up to 500, so the article that I read said, could there be a 500 hitter? Well, that would, you know, you've got to have an asterisk for something like that because it's just so out of the norm. And uh, even if he hits 400, it's a great accomplishment. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of guys have hit 400 for a third of a season. So, uh because it's a whole season, is it any better or worse? I don't know. Uh, but the year has been a crazy year. Yeah, and as you said, um, with the schedule that we've had, we've had a few teams not completing as many games as other teams. So at the end of the season, if they need nine games to make up, are they still going to lead a lead a division because – of uh, percentage points. I mean, how how can you determine a real winner with that sort of situation? So the, that's something they're going to look at probably as time goes on uh, down the road. You have in the NL East, for example, you have the Marlins that have played 11 games so far. They're on first place mm -hmm. strictly because of percentage. So other teams have played more games, but they're lower in the percentage, of course. So 
How can you put them in first place? I don't yeah. get it. And and how's it going to work at the end of the year, as you said? But are they going to play like if they've got to play? Uh, let's say the Marlins are in first place, but they've got to make up twelve games. Are they going to play uh, the Phillies and then? You know, the other teams are done, and they got to wait for the Philly series with the Marlins to be done, and then they, then they'll play the Mets or something. But the Mets are having a week off, and then they're going to – it's not I, – I don't know how it's going to work out, but we, we shall see um, how this is all going to come together, I guess, somewhere down the line. But you had an interesting story this week, Rich, uh, uh, about a, a drone in a baseball yeah. Yep. Lo and behold, uh, if there's nothing crazier that can happen in this baseball season, in a game between uh, the Twins and the Pirates um, last week, there was a drone that appeared out in the field unauthorized over Target Field. Uh, Somebody noticed it in the stadium, stopped the game. They saw a... uh, a quadcopter, as they call them, out there hovering, and then it quickly disappeared. And, you know, there's, there's two things wrong with this. <laughs> Number one is that's a, a, a rule that should never be broken by somebody operating a drone. Uh, and it's a, it's a law that you cannot operate a drone or unmanned aircraft uh, around the stadium or within three miles of a stadium. Oh. Hmm. Um starting one hour before a game scheduled start and ending one hour after a game start. There's a whole ton of rules and regulations that drone operators must follow. I myself have an interest in drones. That's how I stumbled upon this story. I didn't really hear it through the press about baseball. I heard it on a podcast (laughs) about drones, believe it or not. So I was like, oh, man, there's always one bad apple in the bunch. You know, that, that gives such a negative aspect and light on drone operators. I, I just want to take that drone operator and hit him over the head with, with his drone. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I, it wasn't uh, funny. It's not cute. It's stupid. It's There's nobody in the stadium, but that doesn't excuse you. And it ruins it for everybody else. That's the thing. Exactly. You know? And not just, you know... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's bad because now somebody's going to get want to get involved, and and the the law, the government, and then you know what are you going to do? But uh, yeah, uh, the same thing happens, you know, outside of the Philly Stadium. Now there's been a few people. It started with two or three, then a few more showed up at the ensuing games, and now they're they're ringing air horns and rattling things, and you know, doing everything they so can. What are they? So they, team. Uh, yeah. So they watching the game from the uh, through the drone into the parking lot? Well, no. They're in Philadelphia, you can actually see the field from a locked gate. Um the stadium is actually below ground level. Right. So if you go up to certain gates at the stadium, you can actually see in and see a ball game. Uh one of the gates specifically, but um yeah, they've had fans out there, and this doesn't pertain to drones at all. They just bring their horns, their air horns, and <laughs> you know, noise-making items. You'll probably see that this weekend. Uh, 
the Phillies <laughs> playing the Mets, you'll hear it on televisions. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's certainly a different story, but uh, um, I've got one more. I got a different story for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this weekend, uh, the Mets last weekend, the Mets played the Marlins, and um, the Marlins before that series had added pitcher Pat Venditti. Now, I don't know if you know much about Pat Venditti, but Pat Venditti is a unique pitcher, Rich. He pitches from both sides of the the, uh, rubber, so to speak. He throws righty, he throws lefty. He has a glove that uh, he switches right on the mound. It's a double hinged glove. Uh, in fact, in the in my other uh, room, I do have a uh, a bobblehead or a bobble arm, whatever you want to call it, of uh, Pat Venditti that was given out at a Staten Island Yankees game because he did. Uh, I think originally was signed by the Yankees and came up through their system. And he's been around. He's thirty five now. He uh, has been around with another a uh, bunch of different team, but. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch when he pitches because he will pitch right-handed against right-handed hitters and left-handed against left-handed hitters and against switch hitters. They, they made a law because of him, a rule. He has to declare which way he wants to pitch against a, when a switch hitter comes up. So he pitched against the Mets. I think it was, uh, I can't remember who was up, but it it was a right-handed batter up first. He pitched right-handed. Then a lefty came up, and he just switched gloves on to the other hand and threw left-handed. Really an incredible thing to see. Uh, I think there was a couple of hits off of him, and and they took him out. But uh, Pat Venditti made it back again to the major leagues he's had like uh five teams he's been with and had major league stints with all of them and uh quite a colorful character and the kind of stories we're not used to seeing in the game anymore uh but uh, i thought you might enjoy that uh pat venditti uh the double thrower or ambidextrous whatever you want to call it but uh quite entertaining <laughs> Yeah, he is quite entertaining, as you said. And, uh, yeah, the uh, the Phillies uh, have faced him over the years. And I think he was even on the Phillies at one point. He may just, have been. <laughs> I yeah, I, I, I sort of remember him being possibly on the Phils at some point. But uh, he has yeah, been but- around. And uh, five teams, uh, as the article said, I'm I'm just looking now to see. As uh, my dog Jackson is, uh, <laughs> well, um, you know he's there. Yeah, he's barking. <laughs> um, let's see, Pat Venditti. No, he's thirty-five now. So yeah, he's probably. Yeah. Uh, he's been around. He's yeah. been around, but uh, he's pitched for the. Uh, wow. He's pitched a lot of plays. He's got his minor league record here. Uh, yeah, he's he's pitched all over the place. So, Toronto, Seattle, um, Miami. Looks like the Dodgers and the Giants. No, not not the Phillies. Didn't make it to the Phillies. 
There's always next year, though, Rich. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they, might, they might need him with that bullpen. <laughs> well, Rich, we've got a, a terrific uh, uh, interview today um, with John Shea. He is the author of this terrific book called uh, 24 Life Lessons, uh, Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid, all about Willie Mays. And um, we're going to bring that up. Uh, I did that. Uh, uh, I only could get him on a. When you were working in the real world, I, I don't have that uh, <laughs> problem anymore. So. Uh. So uh, I missed you on the interview, but I hope that I did it justice, and we're going to have it right after this. My guest this week is John Shea. He is the author of four baseball books, including Ricky Henderson's autobiography, Off Base, Confessions of a Thief. He's an award-winning national baseball writer at the National uh, at San Francisco Chronicle, seen on the MLB Network, and he's got this terrific new book out called 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid. He's the co-author with Willie Mays, and he's joining me. John, how are you today? I'm great. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm very well. Uh, it's, it's great to finally talk to you. We had a little bit issue the other day, but uh, a little technical issue. I, I think it had to do with the weather, though, because we had uh, the hurricane coming through at that time, so... Uh, that yeah. might have had something to do with it, but I rebooted. We had earthquake, so we're in, we're uh, even. There you go. So uh, Mother Nature screwed with our interview, <laughs> but we're able to do it today. And uh, I think I said told you the other day in our brief moment of talking that how much I enjoyed the book. It's a terrific book. Um, how did the book come about for you and for Willie? Well, thank you. No, I mean. There have been many books written about Willie, and I, I didn't want to have those books, despite how great many of them are, maybe be the defining voice. And I tried to go a little deeper because so many books took uh, content from other books, which took content from other books, kind of a hand-me-down thing. And I wanted to be 100% new, fresh, exclusive material. In other words, nothing that Willie said or anybody who said anything about Willie uh, would be included in this book. Everything was off limits. In other words, no bibliography. Uh, uh, sometimes you look at Willie books, there are 35 pages of bibliography, you know, mm -hmm. from microfiche and newspapers and magazines and everything, which is fine. It's great. It's detailed. But I needed this to be fresh, and Willie wanted it to be fresh. So we came together and maybe 15 years ago first started speaking about it. And he wanted it to be in classrooms, which meant oh. an inspirational theme. And instead of just life stories, life lessons. So therefore, you know, that's the title, the subtitle. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we kind of took it a little further. And Willie and I spent more than 100 hours together on the book project. And I went off and interviewed more than 200 people and brought those stories back to Willie and he supplemented and complimented those, and uh, we have what we have now. He is 89 years old, and yeah. and it's odd now at this point that a book comes out. Thank goodness it does because, you know, uh, the uh, the stories are wonderful, and, and 
I, I'm a bit of a historian. I was a history major in college, but uh, I, I love baseball history, and I and I love this kind of stuff. And uh, we're losing a lot of that. I don't think we we pay a lot of attention to history anymore. And to have this on the record is just amazing. Well, you know, Willie and Hank Aaron are the two people who played in the Negro Leagues who are in the Hall of Fame who are with us today. Mm -hmm. And that's just a tremendous thing to honor who they are, uh, who they've been, what they represent, uh, where they came from. And the fights that they won, they persevered and got through it all. I mean, I'm talking the uh, the racism that they faced from going to the Negro Leagues to white baseball in the early 50s. And both, both of them persevered to become American icons and heroes. In fact, there's a chapter in the book about Hank and Willie. In fact, I thought that could have been an entire book because <laughs> I spent with uh, time with Hank speaking about Willie and, of course, a lot of time with Willie. Speaking about Hank, going over their memories and mm -hmm. time together, uh, barnstorming. They said the best team they ever played on was the barnstorming team after the 1954 season. And if they said that was the best team they ever played on, that might have been the best team of all time. Right. You know, <laughs> Campanella and Banks. and I mean, they had four Hall of Fame outfielders that they had figured, with no DH, obviously. Right. But. Uh, Anyway, it, it was just a tremendous honor to be part of the storytelling and provide something we could call new history because we know the basics of the four home runs in Milwaukee and the catch in the polo grounds and the 16th inning home run to beat Spawn one nothing. But now we hear from these men and women who recall uh, now, you know, amid a, a life lived, uh, an honorary life lived, an exemplary life lived. And, I speak with all the people who were there in 51 and 54 and 62 and 73 and on and on. And even with the Negro Leagues and childhood buddies. So we hoped uh, for it to be all encompassing. And I, I we, we hope it is. I was fortunate enough to see him, I would say, towards the end of his prime years. I might have caught a couple of his prime years. Uh, and then, of course, 73 was not a good example of who Willie Mays was, though there were flashes there. But um, uh, I, I saw him. My mother was a big New York Giants fan, and uh, she used to tell me all the time about Mel Ott and Bill Terry and Carl Hubble and then later on Willie Mays. And, uh, you know, Bobby Thompson was a big hero. Uh, so she was brokenhearted, became a Met fan when, when the Mets came in, naturally. And that's where I get my illness from today, uh, still. <laughs> uh, sounds, it sounds like your mother and Joan Payson would have hit it off. <laughs> yeah, I think they would have. <laughs> um, but I can remember going to see a game, and, and Willie Mays just, just I, I, don't, I think it was uh, probably, it was in Shea Stadium, so it had to be after 64, and he just destroyed the Mets in that game. But it was unbelievable what he could do. Uh, he, he could... Uh, he just could do it all. He could run. He could feel. He was truly your five-tool player of the time. And Branch Rickey wrote a book back in the day suggesting uh, didn't really lay it out, as we call it today, five tools, but mentioned them all, mm -hmm. didn't label them, and suggested it was only Mays and Mickey Mantle. And at the time, that was absolutely correct because they could run, they could feel, they could right. throw. Uh, it, w there's a great chapter with Willie and Mickey and the Duke, 
uh, involved. And Willie talks about the tools, comparing him to Mickey, only because I asked him to. He wouldn't talk <laughs> that otherwise. But he said that Mickey could run faster than him. Wow. He said Mickey and Veda Pinson were the fastest dudes on a baseball field that he remembered. And Mickey, of course, could hit the ball farther than him. He said, "He said I could hit the ball in the first or second row of the bleachers, and Mickey would hit it over the bleachers." <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he but he was able, fortunate enough, to avoid injuries for the most part, uh, unlike uh, Mantle. And uh, that was the big argument when I was a kid. Of course, the, the Dodgers had left and the Giants had left, but. Uh, Mantle and Mays was still the argument for some reason. In still in New York, we didn't know much about uh, the Dodgers at that time. I grew up in Queens, so uh, mm-hmm. it was you know naturally before the Mets came along, we were Yankee fans for that uh, two year period that I can remember of baseball <laughs> before the Mets came along. Uh, but uh, how did you first get to meet Willie Mays? Well, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I caught the tail end of his career as a child and went out to Candlestick Park and braved the weather and sat and watched the, the glory that was Mays uh, in the late 60s into the 70s and just so much better than everybody else. And he was the kind of guy you uh, wouldn't take your eye off, not just at the plate, but in the field, because every fly was entertainment it was the basket catch or he told me in the book i tried to make the easy plays look tough and the tough plays look easy (laughs) so he did that he said to entertain and make sure those folks in the stands come back tomorrow but anyway i uh went to school in san diego i covered the padres in the mid 80s i came back to the bay area started covering the giants and the a's in 1988 and by then, Willie Mays was back in the organization. He came back in 86, thanks to Peter Uberoth, who brought Mickey and Willie back uh, from the uh, who-knows-what list. From that the Hindu <laughs> Supposedly with gamblers, even though they were nothing but uh, uh, you know PR people who play golf and sign autographs for these casinos, and there was no pension for these guys. So anyway, Uberoth uh, looked really good by bringing them both back into the fold after the, he uh, worked on the 84 Olympics. And so anyway, Willie was back by the time I got back. And Willie, unlike a lot of Hall of Famers, always seemed to be around and present, you know, hanging out in the clubhouse with the guys. And that's always been the case. And he's always been good with the media. Uh, you know, he razzes us, we razz him. And anyway, I was fortunate enough to uh, strike up a, uh, trustworthy and good, com- um, um, you know, relationship with Willie, and I, I wrote about him, and then became the national baseball writer. And why wouldn't I write about him as much as I could? Mm-hmm. So sure. he kept talking to me because obviously he must have thought the the stories uh, were fair. And I asked him 15 years ago, and and you know that's when we started working on the book. But yeah, I, uh, growing up here, I mean, he was the man, right? I mean, yeah. everyone who has a password or a phone number always tries to get 24 in there somewhere. And they play at 24 Willie Mays Plaza. They got a cable car 24. I mean, that was the number you wanted to be as a kid, you know? Uh, and, you know, there's only one of them on a team, so you didn't, you didn't always be that guy. But, right. but uh, it was it was, it was was part of uh, childhood for myself and so many others uh, I, I knew around the neighborhood and the region and the whole Bay Area. 
But now he always wasn't the man out in San Francisco. When the, when the Giants first moved out there, there was still a lot of loyalty towards uh, Joe D. You talked about Mantle and Mays in New York. Well, he came here. He thought, okay, this is a one-team town. Well, he didn't know that it was going to be Mays and DiMaggio in San Francisco <laughs> because like 20-plus years earlier, the great Joe D played for the old San Francisco Seals of the Pacific Coast League, and that was baseball that was the epitome of the game here in the bay area and on the coast and dimaggio was the king as an 18 year old uh, he had this amazing hit streak and captured the hearts of uh, you know the pcl fans he and his brothers and uh, the yankees grabbed him and he went to new york and became joe dimaggio jolton joe but willie comes along and 58 tries to buy a house in 57 is denied because uh, he was a black man um, and that's a whole side story just ridiculous uh, for San Francisco an embarrassment uh, that you know we still recall but uh, he eventually got the house but once he got on the field he wasn't fully accepted right away which was the most bizarre thing considering who we know of him today but mm-hmm. the old timers and some in the media, favored Joe. So wait a minute, Joe, Joe's been long gone, but you know, you got the best player, best all around player. You got the most entertaining player and he just arrives on your doorstep and and you're booing him and you're not accepting him. And it took a few years for the Bay area to fully accept them. The A's weren't in town until the late sixties. So it was really the giants town. The, the old seals had to move because uh, Major League Baseball was was here. So a lot of people were upset that the Seals were no more. They were playing in Seal Stadium, which was Joe DiMaggio's stadium. and um, It was Joe DiMaggio's town. And here Willie is playing Joe DiMaggio's position. <laughs> so it, it was it was a funky thing. But a lot of old-timers I spoke with saying that that was kind of a minority. The great majority of people just worshipped the guy. Uh, you mentioned earlier that he did. He played in the in the uh, uh, Negro leagues um, after Jackie Robinson, and uh, went. Uh, of course, uh, once Jackie broke the barrier, he went to the New York Giants, was signed, and played in the minor league balls. Um, Willie was always kind of a quiet guy in a way. Uh, how did he handle uh, the taunts and everything? And could he? I mean, there were some thoughts, if I remember correctly, that Monty Irvin could have been the first uh, black player, would have been perfect other than Jackie, uh, but they didn't think he had the temperament or he might be too easygoing. And the same thing might have been said for Willie. Was there ever any thought that somebody else other than Jackie Robertson may have uh, broken the barrier first? Well, old-timers in the Negro League thought, you're right, Monty was going to be the guy because Monty could do it all. And what a gentleman he was. And he wasn't uh, taking anything from anybody. And then he went into the military and he came back. He wasn't in the same shape. He wasn't in the same mental frame of mind. Branch Rickey spoke with him. And, and Monty just said, well, you know, I'm not ready. Give me a little time. And Branch Rickey turned around and signed Jackie, which was absolutely wonderful Mm -hmm. and Willie adored Jackie um you know who left us too early but he also adored Monty and Monty was Willie's first roommate when Willie came up in 1951 
And it was like a big brother situation. I mean, Monty, unfortunately, wasn't able to spend his prime years in the major leagues because not until the late 20s, early 30s did he emerge as a big leaguer. And he was still a, a, just a force, a five-tool force, and uh, uh, played with uh, Willie and Hank Thompson, the first uh, three African-Americans who composed uh, an outfield together. So, um, yeah, it, it, it could have been money, but but Willie came. I mean, imagine Willie Mays uh, right outside Birmingham, Alabama, and what he thought was the, the Birmingham Black Barons were, were going to be it. That was his team. That was the end of the line for him. He just figured, well, if I could play with the Birmingham Black Barons, I'm set for life, yeah, you know? yeah. But one day, Willie's dad, Willie Howard May Sr., came to him and said, Willie, now you got a chance. And he said, what the heck do you mean I got a chance? He said, well, <laughs> the Dodgers just signed uh, Jackie Robinson, and he's going to Montreal in, in 1946 to play AAA. And from then on, Willie said, okay, I do got a chance. And, you know, he's just a kid in 1946 uh, in, in high school, and he started playing with the Black Barons. He played a sophomore, junior, senior <laughs> With the, with the Mighty Black Barons, a legendary team, uh, folks in their 20s and 30s he's playing ball with, and he didn't hit so much, but, man, he, he ran everything down in, in the outfield and ran the bases like nobody, and they worshipped the guy, and they took care of the guy. Uh, then the Giants come along right after he graduates uh, from high school, and uh, they sign him, and it was a little competition. Uh, a lot of teams just struck out because he was black. Uh, they didn't uh, think it through or, or whatever. I mean, some racist ownerships, obviously, back in the day. And they, they passed on the great Willie Mays. And the, he kind of fell to the Giants who won the lottery. And they sent him to Trenton. So he goes from the Negro Leagues to not only the only black man on his team, but the only black man in the league. So, yeah, you're right. He came right after Jackie, broke in four years after Jackie to the big leagues, but he uh, heard the taunts and uh, all the garbage that Jackie heard, and he put up with it. In fact, one quick story, he, he told me during one interview I had with him for the book, he said, he said, I just didn't know if it was worth it. This is back in Trenton wow. when he was hearing all what he heard, and I couldn't believe he said that. Imagine baseball without Willie Mays if he just turned back, went away, we came back to Birmingham, um, you know, work, you know, played with the Black Barons or, or worked in the mills like his dad or mm -hmm. did all these, you know, who knows what we never right. would have heard from. But luckily, you know, he overcame all that and beat the hardships and, and won in the end and left the bigots behind and became, you know, the Hall of Famer <laughs> and five tool, uh, prominent ball player we know. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of strange in a way because he he gets promoted to the Giants, he doesn't hit well, and he's actually begging DeRoche to go back down to the minors to go back to Trenton, uh, I guess. And uh, or Minneapolis. By then he was oh yeah, Minneapolis. He was hitting, okay. Yeah he, yeah, he was hitting four seventy seven in Minneapolis, uh, which was AAA. <laughs> he got the big promotion. He was loving it because that team was integrated. That league was integrated. It was much better than the Interstate B League in Trenton. Right. right. And, and uh, you know, the fans were behind him. And he didn't want to go up. But Leo <laughs> said, we're scuffling. We need you. And he said, man, what do you, what do you mean you need me? I'm here. I'm fine. And he said, no, man. Because they were they were sub-500 team in late May, and they wanted Mays to uh, 
boost the, the energy yeah. on the team. Yeah, you're right, though. 0 for 12. Uh, Warren Spawn hit the home run off Spawn at the Polo Grounds. Now he's 1 for 13. But then he went 1 for 26. And that's when he's crying at his locker and he's telling Leo, said, this is too fast for me, man. He said, no. He said, I don't need you to hit. I just need you to play the defense you're playing. Right. And that settled Willie down. And from then on, he started hitting. I, I think it's, it's, it's uh, fascinating that two of the biggest stars of that era that we were talking about before, Mantle and Willie, both had these uh, personal crises, if you will, uh, when they got first got to the majors. Mickey had a similar issue with, uh, you know, he, he uh, wanted to quit, I think, after his first year. And his father came with a suitcase and said, okay, you want to go home? You can go home now. Uh, yeah, and, and and the same thing with Willie, and and we look at these guys in the, in the totality of their career, and you would never think that they would have went through this sort of thing, but it just goes to show you that they're as human as everybody else, and has have for all their talent, their little frailties. There's so many parallels with Willie and Mickey. Uh, both were rookies the same year, both in the same city, both playing the same position, and like we said, both five tool just wonderful ball players, but they had fathers who both were in the mills. Both were good ball players. Uh, both hoped their kid would play baseball, but Mutt, who was Mickey's dad kind of mm -hmm. forced it, said, you are going to be a baseball player <laughs> where cats, the nickname for Willie Howard May senior didn't push it as much as encouraged it. And that's why Willie just loved the game forever because he wasn't forced to play. Remember he was, a better football player, great quarterback, better basketball player, shooting guard in high school than he was a baseball player. He ranked baseball number three on his chart, best sports in high school. <laughs> Willie May. But uh, they came up the same year. They both struggled. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they both met in the World Series that year. And that's another Joe D story because uh, – in the in the fifty one World Series, Giants Yankees, Willie hit a pop up to right center, and Mantle at the time was playing right, waiting for Jody to retire. And uh, Casey Stengel told Mickey, he said, "Hey, go get anything you can because uh, Joe had a little uh, nagging injury." So Willie hits a fly ball to right center, and Joe calls off Mickey, and then Mickey makes this quick stop at Yankee Stadium and falls and collapses and blows out his knee mm -hmm. and was never the same, but right. my goodness, what, what amazing that he ever came back from it. Uh, Jane Levy outlines the injury in her book on Mickey, but uh, so anyway, those three Hall of Famers kind of united at that same moment that Willie hit the ball and uh, Joe caught the ball and, and Mickey kind of regretted the fact that uh, that all happened because he, he was shelled for the longest time and had knee injuries uh, forever after that. But there were so many parallels, great parallels that Willie tells in, in the book about himself and, and Mantle. And uh, in the book, it's uh, logically uh, broken into 24 chapters. And as you said, there's a, a life lesson by Willie in each one. Uh, uh, how did, how did you come about that uh, idea? I know you said that you wanted to get a life lesson in there, but uh, how, how did the 24 chapters come about? Obviously because of the number, but uh, was there any other reason for it? Well, we wanted to make this kind of a legacy book and provide lessons for 
kids. And while Willie wanted it directed toward the younger audience, young adults, the ch children, it obviously uh, is generational. In other words, old timers who saw him play, uh, others who wish they saw him play, but maybe didn't, but heard or read about him. It was kind of directed for everybody. Um, but with the 24, a good friend of mine, Kurt Aguilar, who was my right-hand man, kind of my ed editor, who, uh, you know, a longtime copy editor at the San Francisco Chronicle, San Jose Mercury, a baseball historian, a Willie Mays historian. He's the one who came up with 24. And it, it you know, kind of, um, you know, toward the like seventh or eighth inning of, of the process. And just, it, 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 we all looked at each other. So that's, why didn't we come up with that 15 years ago? And, <laughs> and it just fit everything. We had about that many chapters and we wanted to provide lessons in each. So you're right. Every chapter begins with a little lesson of life, you know, two, three sentences uh, that, that is um, kind of demonstrated throughout the chapter in the storytelling. So there's so many layers to the book and, I, you know, 24 was, just, was when we went back to, to Willie, to, oh, yeah, 24. Okay. Let's, let's move on. Okay. We got the title because that would, that was just absolutely perfect. So we made sure that there were exactly 24 chapters because it's such an iconic number. I mean, Ricky Henderson, who grew up here was 24 because of Willie and uh, Ken Griffey Jr. was 24 because of Ricky. Um, Tony Perez, I spoke with just, was floored the day he got called up to Cincinnati and they gave him 24 because he knew all about Mays yeah. through his father. And uh, Rick Barry, the wonderful basketball player who mm -hmm. grew up in New Jersey, worship, worshiping Willie uh, and going to visit him at the polo grounds, uh, became 24 in college and his pro career. In fact, when he moved from the Warriors to the Houston Rockets, he wanted 24 so badly, but Moses Malone was 24. Oh, so Rick got two at home and four on the road. I mean, who does that? I said, Rick, how did you do that? You said, well, I, I just did it. I mean, imagine that today, you know, different rosters, uh, different whatever. But anyway, he did it two at home and four on the road for Rick Barry. But, you know, obviously Kobe Bryant and uh, others in auto racing and football and all the sports, but it seems like 24, like Ricky said, you, you got to be pretty good to wear 24. Yeah. It's a lot to live up to. <laughs> Um, and he goes to the World Series against Cleveland in, uh, what was that, 54, correct? Yes. Uh, and, of course, makes the catch uh, that everybody has seen the still picture of him with his back to the infield. But uh, uh, I urge everybody, if you've never seen the video, watch the video because one of the most outstanding things is the actually the throw afterwards uh, – and it, it almost looks like he's throwing it blindly, uh, but uh, f from, you don't see the end of the play, but the throw was highly accurate from what I can recall reading about it. Uh, take us to the catch a little bit. Well, it, it was six and a half seconds from contact off Vic Wirtz's bat to the release on Willie Mays' throw. In those six and a half seconds, we've all seen a million times every time the World Series is played or the greatest catch countdown is played. This is the most famous catch in baseball history. I mean, it was game one of the World Series against the mighty Cleveland Indians who won 111 games in a 154-game season. <clears throat> so, you know, young Willie is a center fielder, 
and it's two to two in the eighth inning. And Vic Wirtz, who's been crushing the ball all game, sends one about 450, 460 feet. And only in the polo grounds can we see this play. <laughs> so we're lucky that Willie played in the most bizarre baseball stadium. Well, <laughs> until he got the candlestick anyway, uh, in, in, in history. I mean, it just wasn't built for a baseball game. But luckily for all of us, it was 483 feet to dead center. So Willie could run forever. And he did. And when Wirtz hit that ball and that six and a half second sequence began, which epitomized Willie Mays, his athleticism, his sixth tool, um, uh, you know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, he uh, imagined what was going to happen before it happened. Um, here he is, you know, right after World War II, the first African-American uh, superstar, uh, the most entertaining ball player. I mean, here he was, these six and a half seconds, it's all, you know, the five tools are showing. And he goes back, and during those six and a half seconds, he doesn't think about making the catch because he knows he's going to make the catch, even though it's way over his head. He's saying, I got to make the throw. I can't let them score. It's two to two in the eighth inning. They score here. You know, they get the momentum. Mm -hmm. They're going to beat us in this World Series. So Willie tracks it down, and he does this, which means every time, you know, all his teammates told me he does that, he, it's in the bag. He's going to make the catch. Yeah. So the big thing is the throw. Everyone refers to it as the catch, but in Willie minds, it's the throw <laughs> because uh, Al Rosen is on first and the great Larry Doby is on second, and they're running on the play. They don't think Willie's going to make the catch. So Willie makes the catch. Rosen has to go back to first. Doby goes to second, tags, and gets to third. Nobody scores. Willie throws a strike to second base. You're right, almost like a no-look throw because he wanted to get it in so quickly, and right. he knew the elements, he knew the ballpark. So nobody scored. They get out of the inning, and Dusty Rhodes hits a pinch homer in the 10th, and they win the game. <laughs> and then they sweep the Indians. So Mays' catch was really uh, the momentum for what happened in that. In fact, today, the Willie Mays uh, World Series Most Valuable Player Award, that trophy named after Willie, and what does the trophy look like? Well, Willie's making a catch. Yeah. It's a beautiful trophy. And that signifies, you know, that moment in time. People say, oh, this catch was better than Willie. No, it wasn't. Because where Willie caught it, when Willie caught it, and the fact that uh, we were just seeing black and white baseball on TV, it, it just they all came together. And luckily, we have it on film. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I spoke with folks at StatCast who tried to break it down. But you can't because... The beginning of that film, yeah. you don't see where Willie yeah. is, and you, you don't see where the throw went. You, all you all you can do is speak with people who were there, and I did, but uh, you can't measure it. So I got some real good, you know, from John Miller to Vince Scully to Carl, uh, not Carl Erskine, but Al uh, uh, Rose and all, a lot of folks who were there that day, um, Joey Malfitano, and they kind of broke it down for me. Uh, so we could write it in, in their words, which, you know, I, I, I didn't want to do it. I wanted them to do it. And that was the fascinating part. And that was his only, if I'm recalling, that was his only championship. It was. Yeah. He was the World Series in 51, 54, 62, 73, but also the last Negro League World Series in 1948. Okay. Uh, the last one ever played, and the Black Barons uh, made it to the World Series. But you're right. Uh, 54 was the only win. 62 was the toughest to take because it went seven games, as you remember. And 
and McCovey hits the liner to Richardson and the Giants lose one nothing. Yeah. That was it. I mean, if that goes through, they would have won the World Series. Because Mays is on second and Maddie lose on third and mm-hmm. the two outs in the bottom of the ninth. They were and, running. Yeah. But McCovey said, told me that uh, he bumped into Richardson uh, not long ago and Richardson told him that his hand is still hurting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I would imagine so the way he hit that ball. He he, he really he hit that hard. Uh, so Willie plays these years in San Francisco. He's getting older. And uh, you mentioned Mrs. Payson before. She arranges to bring Willie back home somewhat. Um, how did he feel about getting traded? I mean, he was a lifelong giant. You know, two cities. Uh, you know, you want to stay with one team your whole career. How did he feel, the great Willie Mays, about being traded? Willie told me there were two regrets he had in life. When one was not going to college, he never really had that opportunity from the time he grew up and where he grew up, um, you know, to play baseball in college or uh, even football in college as a quarterback, because that's what he was. So, Mm -hmm. so he signed with the giants. Um, uh, Luckily (laughs) he played baseball. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah. So um, years later, you know, he, he looks back at that as, is the obviously the right thing to do. Um, but anyway, it, he, the other regret was being traded. And that was an immediate regret that lasted for a little bit. It didn't last forever because uh, while he wanted to retire a giant, he felt like he was going back home. And he, was, he had the close kinship with Joan Payson, who was a minority owner of the old New York Giants, and then when they moved, she just sold, sold all her shares, didn't want any part of that, and always wanted to do two things, bring a National League team back to New York and have Mays on her team again. <laughs> well, she became the majority owner of the Mets and spoke with Horace Stoneham for quite a bit about bringing Mays back to, uh, to New York. And it finally happened, I mean, obviously late in Willie's career. 1970, Willie was 40. He was still a great ball player. He led the league in walks. He led the league in on-base percentage. He had 23 homers, or 18 homers. He had 23 steals, 26 attempts. So he could do it all, and he was still a great center fielder. But the following May, Stoneham trades him to the Mets because he said he couldn't afford his $165,000 salary. (laughs) So he got Charlie Williams, who didn't really pan out, but... uh, uh, so Mays goes to New York, and I spoke with a lot of Mets, uh, Tom Seaver a long time ago, Crane Poole, Kuzman, and they just spoke glowingly about Mays when he walked in the clubhouse and uh, the presence and the fact that we got this great ball player. And, you know, this just, you know, they won in 69, but they weren't all that good uh, in the following years. In fact, in 73, in August, they were in the last place mm-hmm. in their division. And uh, they just went crazy in September and won the division, beat the Reds, and then played the A's in the World Series. But but if you look back, uh, Mays was a part-time player with the Mets mm-hmm. in 72 and 73. I mean, he actually led the Mets in OPS, which is on-base percentage plus uh, uh, slugging percentage. So um, it wasn't a bad year as a bench player. Right. Uh, he played first base. 
Played a lot and, of first base, yeah. Yeah, played a lot of first base. Then the next year, Willie was fine calling it quits then. He said, but Joan Payson wanted him to play another year. And that was the worst year because of the injuries. He was never on the disabled list until his final year at age 42. Imagine that. I mean, Willie Mays was as durable as it gets. We talk about Cal Ripken, but Willie Mays has a record. 150 games for 13 straight season, 150 plus. Jeez. Even Cal can do that. 150 plus games for 13 straight seasons. And most of that streak during the 154 game season. So he didn't take time off. He played both ends of the doubleheader. He played day games after night games. Um, he just you know wanted to play through. He played nine, ten innings in every All Star game. Uh, um, spring training, the managers always wanted him to play just so the fans could see him. He wore out quite a bit, but that was his thing. His dad always told him, you know, work hard. And what he meant by that was play the game. Don't ask to come out. Don't have the manager pull you. So anyway, 1973 happens, and, you know, Willie's got ribs, he's got shoulder, and he's got knee, and all needed a lot of work in the trainer's room. And he didn't even play after September 9th when he broke two ribs going for a ball uh, as a first baseman, crashing into the, you know, side and foul territory mm -hmm. and messing up his ribs. So he didn't play again until the playoffs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And he figured, okay, I'm just going to – they had Willie Mays Day at Chase Stadium. He yeah, retired, earjerker. <laughs> uh, everybody was there. Um, so, anyway, you fast forward to the World Series, and he's starting center fielder. Game one is the number three hitter in Oakland. Oh, my God. And he gets a hit. Uh, he's one for four. The Mets lose. But everybody remembers, and you brought it up at the beginning, game two. And that's the one that the Mets won in extra innings. And that's the one that Willie fell down. And that's the one that Willie's at his knees at home plate arguing with Augie Donatelli. And those were the images I knew. That's the only images I knew. I mean, I was, a, I, you know, I was old enough to remember 73. And I, I know about that series. I used to go to A's games as well. But I figured, well, everyone always says, don't be Willie Mays. Don't retire too late. Retire when you're on yeah. top. All this stuff, okay? So, I said, well, I want to research this. So I talked to everybody I could on the Mets, everybody I could on the A's who were there that day, got all these observations from Willie himself. And there's, there's a lot of backstories to the images that we see. In other words, uh, uh, when Willie's on his knees, people say, oh, he must have struck out. He must have dropped the ball. No, he was arguing as the on-deck hitter with Augie Donatelli because yeah. he blew a ball uh, at home plate that caused, yeah, I, I that caused the Mets. Yeah, Harrelson. I think Buddy Harrelson was trying. Was scored and and it looked like he beat the tag. And Willie was the on. I believe he was the on deck hitter. Yeah. He was the on deck hitter, and that's why he was closest to the plate. And, and he he wasn't complaining to the umpire because of something he did. He was supporting he, Bud Harrelson right. because Harrelson was safe. Fossey missed the tag. Right. Though Fossey told me he got he he he, he tagged <laughs> him out in the book. So you get both sides, obviously. And so that kind of explains that picture. And there's. You know, there's the, uh, you know, playing center field. He botched a player, too. Well, mm -hmm. you know, he is 42. If he did that when he was 22, people would have forgotten it and moved on. But now he's older, so people remember it. But, again, he hardly played after September. But Rusty Staub had a bum shoulder in game one, so he's playing center field and hitting third. Game two, he doesn't start but goes in for Rusty as a pinch uh, runner, stays in the game, 
It actually goes out to right field because that was Rusty's position. Mm -hmm. Yogi didn't tell him where to play. <laughs> and then he and Don Hahn are both out there in right field together. <laughs> and they both look in the dugout. So what, 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 who's playing center? And they, they signal Willie, you go, you go play center. I said, okay. So sure enough, Darren Johnson of the A's hits this, uh, you know, soft line drive uh, over the infield. And Willie comes in, tries to make a shoestring catch and falls over. The ball goes back to the wall. And uh, later in the game, you know, Reggie hits a ball over him and he loses it in the sun. So I, I wanted to do the research. And I said, okay, what really happened? What caused these things? And it wasn't, you know, Willie Mays was old as much as, uh, well, I mean, I don't want to make excuses for Mays, but. No, because uh, I, I know where you're going with this. I, I've, I've talked to Cranepool a number of times. I've talked to a couple of the other guys. and Go, go ahead. <laughs> well, Reg, Reggie played center field for the A's that day. Uh, we know him as a right fielder, mm -hmm. but he played center field in game two of the 73 World Series, and he told me that was the most brutal sun he's ever seen. Right. And Oakland was always a bad sun. And Willie had never played in Oakland, even though he played all those years at Candlestick, mm -hmm. just because there was no interleague play and they right. didn't have any – preseason Bay Bridge series or anything like that. The A's didn't come until 69. So anyway, you know, there's, there's the sun, there's the fact that he hadn't played. There's the fact he was injured. There's the fact that there was a miscommunication. He didn't even know he was going to play center field because Yogi didn't tell him, um, you know, on and on and on. And, but everybody who was there just says, Hey man, don't knock Willie. Uh, you know, it's just kind of tough circumstances. And, you know, retire uh, early. I mean, I talked to Ricky Henderson, who was playing independent ball in his mid forties. Uh, all, all these fellows who played deep into their you know forties, and and they all told me, he "said Man, don't don't give up the game. It doesn't matter if you're Willie Mays in his prime. If you're Willie Mays at seventy five percent of the old Willie Mays, you're still pretty darn good and a valuable asset." And that's what Cranepool and Kuzman. Uh, and Seaver told me mm -hmm. that uh, you, you don't want to disregard Mays. But anyway, that's kind of what some people remember of that World Series, even though it might have been unfair. Willie doesn't make excuses, but, um, you know, there are reasons for the images that we see. And there's a backstory to, to everything. And I think that's what we try to present in that mm -hmm. chapter. Well, I, I can remember him playing center field in a in a regular season game, which was kind of rare. And I don't know what year it was. It may have been '72, and and of course there was a fly ball, and he he wasn't using the basket catch as much. But I think I read somewhere that he wanted to do one more time, or he he, he just wanted to do it for the fans. And sure enough, he hit the glove, did the basket catch, and like. You know, I don't know how many people were at the stadium, but it wasn't wasn't that crowded. So it might have been seventy two, but the, the it was, you know, it was an exciting thing to see, yeah. if you will, because this was Willie Mays, and and that and, was the catch. And, and and by the way, speaking of game two, to finish that story, they won the game because of a RBI single by Willie Mays. You got the game winning hit, game winning RBI. And speaking of the sixth tool. Uh, uh, Raleigh Fingers is on the mound, a Hall of Famer, Ray Fossey mm -hmm. behind the plate. We all know both those guys. Right. And first pitch fastball, Willie steps out of the box and says, Ray, I can't see that ball, man. I can't see it. You know, the, the sun, I, I, I can't, you know, just the backdrop here. It's, you know, I'm new to this place. So Fossey hears that and says, okay, let's get another fastball back down the pipe. <laughs> and Willie slugs it into center field. 
and he, you know, he kind of deeks Fossey. Yeah, yeah. And Fossey admits it now. Yeah, he, he kind of deeked us, he but uh, still. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was the greatness of Mays. You know, if if you couldn't uh, just beat him by pure athleticism at forty two, I'm going to outthink you. And if George Stone had started Game Six <laughs> instead of Siva, and he rested Yogi rested Siva that extra day. Willie may have had his second championship. <laughs> and and there's another story. You're right. Uh, everyone tells me that. You know, Yogi, you shouldn't have done that. You messed up the rotation in game six and seven. But when the series ends, Wayne Garrett is out there, a lefty against a lefty, and Yogi had a right-hander named Willie Mays on the bench. And Willie tells me now, he says, you know what? I just wish he would have picked me. And I, I kind of say, you know, regret uh, should I have gone up to him and said, hey, you know, I, I can do this? He said, no, that wasn't my style. I'm not going to do that to a manager. Uh, but all these years later, he wished he had that chance. It was a lefty, Daryl Knowles, who came in, and Yogi stuck a left-hander up there, which wouldn't have happened today. Wayne Garrett wouldn't have been the batter right, today, right. lefty on lefty. And, you know, and I talked to Cranepool and Kuzman. He said, yeah, we would have loved to have Willie up there. <laughs> so all these years later uh, – you know, who knows what would have happened? You know, Willie was on deck when Bobby Thompson hit his home yeah, run. That's true. And now, uh, all those years later, uh, they could have used him. Uh, you know, the, it could have fallen on him like it did in the 51 series, uh, 51 uh, playoffs with the Dodgers. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, have you spoken to him recently and how is he doing it at 89 years old and in this pandemic and no baseball? Uh, he, well, now we have some baseball or if you want to call it that. <laughs> but, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been over to his house about three or four times since the book came out. He's doing great. Okay. Uh, you know, he has the game on every night. He had it on last night. Uh, Albert Pujols, one home run behind 660 as we speak. Uh, so, you know, he's not um, bummed about that. He respects it and, you know, good for him kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that was the same with A-Rod. It was the same with Barry Bonds, who passed him. It was always, you know, Hank, Babe, and Willie. And, you know, now Willie is, what, uh, fifth. He'll soon drop to sixth. Wow. So. Anyway, he misses the game because he's out there all the time. I was in spring training in Scottsdale, and Willie was in the clubhouse every single game before a home game. And that was just him. That was, you know, he, every year he spends the month of March in Arizona and goes to every home game, so he's accessible mm -hmm. to these guys. In 1993, uh, the Giants owner, Peter McGowan, gave him a lifetime contract. And Willie, you know, took pride in that and uh, wants to live up to it. And that just means uh, he can do whatever he can to help, you know, players or staff or whatever. And the access, you know, I'll, I'll forever uh, cherish and be grateful for that he gave me for this book. Uh, but that's that's the shame of it all is, he, uh, you know, Will, folks like Willie and all the other fans can't go out to see the ball game um, because they're just not allowed. And yeah, uh, yeah. hopefully... You know, someday soon that'll change and Willie and everyone will be able to get out there. And he's in good health overall? Yeah, he is. You know, he's 89. Um, and, you know, he's... Uh, <sighs> I, I, I go over there. It, and it's the same for the interviewing process. I go over there. I say, okay, I'll, I'll be here a, uh, an hour or two, Willie, and then I'll move on. And it's always five, six, seven hours. It's just, you know, I look at my watch and say, oh, my God. And it's, 
It's, it's just like hearing him when he was 26 at the Polo Grounds or, or 36 at Candlestick Park and, and just the storytelling and uh, the laughter and the energy. Is, uh, I said, oh, my God, who, who am I? Why, why, why did God put me here to grace the, the presence of Willie Mays and to hang out with the Say Hey Kid? Yeah. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a lucky guy and uh, uh, to, to be able to, to share the stories of, of Willie and all these great, fascinating people. Now, he never he, he got a reputation, fair or unfair. You, maybe you can clear this up. Uh, of not being the nicest guy, like in in card shows and that kind of thing, is that true? Is is that uh, uh, I'm going by third party things, so I don't want to put anything on him, you know? But he he did not have the best reputation as being the nicest man. Is is there any truth to that, or is it just you know maybe he he just had a bad day or whatever? Uh, anything you could say on that at all? Well, there, there are stories I've heard from people through email or Twitter or uh, whatever in person. Say, so, yeah, uh, Willie kind of stiffed me. He didn't give me an autograph and, uh, you know, he didn't look up at the card show or whatever. But, you know, a great majority, 99% of the people I hear from ha- had these wonderful experience with them. And, and I guess, you know, any player um, could probably come up with days that they weren't you know, didn't have their A game and mm-hmm. fans remember that because it was the only time they might have uh, crossed paths with them. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they repeat those stories. But, but uh, you know, on the other hand, Willie, um, you know, from where he came to what he became, uh, you know, the teammates and the foes from the 50s, 60s and 70s spoke so glowingly of him and how he shared his life and thoughts and, you know, through his foundation, um, the Say Hey Foundation, you know, he gives back to underprivileged kids, which he once was, and, you know, still uh, is uh, active in, in that role today. But, I mean, the, the reason he keeps going to the ballpark is to be there for players, staff, fans, um, media. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so it seems like he's given back a lot more than he's taken. And, um, and I think that it kind of comes across in the book. I mean, this is Willie Mays who didn't smoke or drink. Uh, he didn't charge the mound. He didn't start a fight. He never got ejected. Um, and, and, you know, Mickey Mantle drank, you know, obviously he, he went out and he, he was hung over when he played. Uh, um, and that shortened his career, maybe his life. Um, but there are others you know, who, speak of Willie in, in that light. In other words, you know, he took care of his body. Um, you know, he didn't go out carousing. You didn't see him in the middle of the night. If he went out carousing, it was to bring you back to the hotel. Um, <laughs> and that there are stories in there about that. So, so I, I, I think this exemplary life comes through, uh, through the storytelling and, and life lessons. And I think when you read it, you'll, you'll understand maybe and can answer that mm-hmm. question more um uh a little better than that but anyway i i go on and on about willie but uh <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so the answer is yes there were probably moments but uh, obviously a lot more times than not there were um moments that people uh, will never forget and and you know a lot of times it's just uh, people just have different 
uh, feelings, you know. Maybe they didn't think you spent enough time with them or something, you know. But uh, mm -hmm. it happens, you know. Uh, uh, they, they say the same about Jeter and Hal Ripken. I mean, uh, yeah, you, you could yeah. find fault anywhere. With any, I mean, yeah. 23 people didn't vote for him for the Hall of Fame, Derek. Explain that. So uh, you, you can find fault with anything, anybody, for any reason on any day. Uh, you know, it's up to you to to interpret that in a negative way or a positive way. Well, John, we we could probably go on all day talking, but uh, unfortunately we're out of time, and uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on with us. It's a terrific book, 24 Life Lessons and uh, Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid, Willie Mays. If you never saw Willie play, sorry, you missed it, because they don't make ball players like that anymore. We don't see a lot of guys like that. Um, and the money he would be making today, forget it. In his prime, holy yeah. cow, he'd be dwarfing Mike Trout, and, uh, and nothing against Mike Trout, but Willie was just fantastic. Uh, if I may say so, and and John, your book well, is great. It, it, in, in the book, Scott Boris, uh, who we interview, says in today's world he could have gotten fifty to fifty-five million over thirteen years. So yeah. you do the math. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and uh, they got mad at him because he was getting one hundred and sixty, or he could Stoneham couldn't pay him because he couldn't right. pay him for one hundred and thirty-five thousand. Uh, hey Gary, if I pay one other thing, uh, Brad Mangin, I, I we spoke about the exclusive mm -hmm. content. Uh, in the storytelling, but also the pictures. There are 90-some pictures, oh, and yeah, terrific. the biggest Willie Mays fan out there wouldn't recognize 90-plus uh, percent of them. So not only the storytelling in the words, but the storytelling in the pictures yeah. are all fresh and, and rare and right. mostly exclusive. And Brad Mangin is the local photographer, and uh, with Kurt Aguilar really helped me take this book to another level with not only the stories, but the pictures. So I wanted to thank both those guys. And there's a great picture and it's kind of, uh, kind of ironic in a way. It's, it's, uh, Willie and Henry, uh, Aaron and, uh, they you know, Willie's in his Mets uniform and Henry's in a Milwaukee Brewers uniform, which is, you know, totally opposite of what we all, we all believed, yeah. <laughs> but it did happen. They played for different teams and, but they both went home too. So, uh, exactly. That's very stories, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, again, John, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, uh, good luck with the book. I hope that this all clears up and you can actually go out and, uh, you know, do some live things, uh, this should be uh, you should be able to read this at, at Cooperstown. I know they have the authors thing, and and I guess they're not doing that this year. It's really a shame, uh, but a terrific. It's really been a terrific season for books, uh, with yours and so many others coming out. But this is a, a, a classic, and and should be on everybody's library. If you love the history of baseball and like to read about the great players, pick up twenty four. It's definitely worth it and thank you again john well thanks gary thanks for this forum and caring about uh, the book and maze and uh, allowing me to uh, go on and on about him <laughs> and the book <laughs> anytime anytime i'll have to have you on again we can talk more about sure. his childhood and henry aaron and whatnot <laughs> yeah i love it okay and i'll be right back 
All right, well, uh, Rich, uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. I uh, hope you enjoyed that interview, and hope everybody else enjoyed it with uh, John Shea. It was very entertaining, and uh, he obviously is a big Willie Mays fan and a uh, terrific ball player, Willie was. Yeah, Willie is the man, as you said. Uh, I'll tell the story again. I think I told it a few times here on the show over the years. But uh, I was lucky enough to see uh, Willie May's 80th birthday out in San Francisco. The only time I've ever seen a Giants game out there was out there in 2011 and uh, or 2012. I can't remember which one. I think it was 2012. But, yeah, he was 80 years old on the field with his family. And, you know, it was a great time. Uh, some old players were on the field. Part of history. So you never know. What's going to happen at a baseball game? Yeah, there you go. And and I, of course, uh, I saw him play, uh, I guess, the mid to end of his career. And uh, definitely his end when he came back to New York. But uh, uh, just, a, a, you know, the guy could do it all. And an entertainer, too, as well, you know, with the hat and flying off as he ran around the bases. And, and uh, uh, what a terrific player. And. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's odd now as, uh, these guys get older and, and pass away that, uh, their numbers, you know, for years it was, uh, Babe Ruth and, and, uh, Willie Mays on the top on the, of the home run list. Then it was Henry Aaron and Babe Ruth and, and Willie Mays. And now they're all falling down. You might say it's sliding down as people pass them. Um, but, uh, Still one of the greatest of all times, uh, the great Willie Mays. And uh, thanks to John Shea for that interview. Well, Rich, we've got another week uh, in the books. And uh, I guess we'll see what happens coming up. Looking forward to it, guys. You have a great week. And you do, too. And we'll see you all again next time on the Baseball Talk Radio Show. <laughs>